Good morning. Okay, it's page 733 in the pew, Red Pew Bible. Okay, Jesus feeds the 5,000. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowds away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The the disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Sorry. Friends, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for giving us your word. And we pray now that as we look at your word that you would uh, be uh, enlightening our minds and our hearts, that uh, we would see Jesus more clearly, that we would be people who live with Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now there is an outline of uh, the sermon in uh, your bulletins and uh, Uh, It'd be helpful also to have your uh, Bibles open at Luke uh, chapter 9 as we uh, work through that passage this morning. I want to talk to you about uh, a man by the name of Lou Wallace. Uh, Lou Wallace was an American soldier who lived in the 19th century. Uh, He was uh, a very well-respected man. He was a leader amongst men. He was a general in the Union Army in the Civil War and uh, after the war, later on in life, he became a politician. Uh, He uh, then became a diplomat, an American diplomat, and he also uh, was a very popular author. In fact, he penned the most popular American novel of the 19th century. Uh, Lou Wallace was also an atheist. He was quite a strong-willed and determined atheist. Uh, He was so opposed to God 
He was so opposed to Jesus, he was so opposed to the Bible that he decided he would write a book which would disprove Christianity. And he was a man who was such a professional and so diligent that he wanted to do his homework on that. He didn't just want to write any old book to disprove Christianity. He wanted to study up and make sure that it was a really good and effective and powerful book to uh, dismantle uh, the Christian faith in the minds of people. And so he did his homework. He spent a lot of time reading in some of the great libraries in America, in the Library of Congress in Washington. He went to Europe and he spent time in the great libraries of Europe reading about Jesus, uh, studying the Bible, reading books about Christianity and uh, uh, so as to write his uh, definitive uh, book which would explode the myth uh, that he believed that Christianity was. However, it was as he went to write his book, in fact as he was writing the second chapter of his book, as he was reflecting on Jesus, as he was reflecting on what he'd learnt, what he'd read, that a great change came about for Lou Wallace. He found himself down on his knees and praying, praying, crying out to Jesus and exclaiming Jesus to be my Lord and my God. The story of C.S. Lewis, whose Narnia chronicles still ignite the imaginations of people around the world, is a little bit similar to that. As a non-Christian, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his 20s, studied the Bible, but he studied the Bible not for the purpose of faith, but rather for the purpose of exposing its mistakes showing people where it was wrong and why it was wrong. But he too was so blown away by what he read about Jesus that at one point he simply dropped to his knees and started praying to the God he didn't believe in. Jesus has that effect on people. Unique in all of history, people for 2,000 years have been convinced that there has never been anyone like Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus of Nazareth is, uh, is unique. And so imagine what it was like for, uh, for men and women who lived in Galilee and Judea in the first century, particularly in those three critical years of Jesus' public ministry, what it was like for them, people who actually had seen Jesus, who had heard him speak, who had even met Jesus, and they knew what he was like. They saw that uh, he was a man who had an extraordinary love for people. They saw that he was a man who, who taught the word of God like no one else they'd ever heard. They saw that he was a man who was uh, courageous enough to expose religious hypocrisy. But more than that, they saw in Jesus one who demonstrated that he had power over nature, 
power over demons and power over even death itself. Imagine that. People were drawn to him. People were astonished by him. People were even in fear of him. And the question which was on everyone's lips was simply this. Who is this man? Who is this man who can control nature? Who is this man who can have authority over demons? Who is this man who can even raise the dead? Now, this is a question. The question about the identity of Jesus is a question, the answer to which gradually unfolds uh, throughout Luke's gospel. It's a slow, gradual, step-by-step unfolding of the answer. But before the answer can be given, the, another great demonstration of power is to take place. And it's the miracle that we see in the passage that we're looking at today from Luke chapter 9. The, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's commonly referred to, uh, is a very, very significant miracle. Um, it's actually, of all of the four Gospels, there are only two miracles which are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. One of those miracles is the resurrection. The other miracle is the feeding of the crowd that we've looked at, we're looking at today. Now, just to set it in context, particularly if you've not been with us over the last few weeks or so, the, the 12 apostles or the, the 12 select disciples of Jesus had been sent out by Jesus on a mission to go from village to village. It was a short-term mission, but to go about healing people, driving out demons and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And so where we pick it up today in chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 10, uh, they have now returned from that mission. They've returned back to Jesus and now it is a time for them to, uh, to debrief with Jesus, to talk about their experiences, what's happened. And it's a time for them to, uh, to retreat, time for them to, to go somewhere where they can be with Jesus away from the crowds. And so they headed to the town of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is on the, on the shore of uh, Lake, the Sea of Galilee. It's on the, the northern shore, north slightly to the east. And it's a, it's a fairly arid kind of area. It's not a particularly fertile uh, district. And so they've headed there in order to get away from the crowds. Now, there wasn't much chance of that happening, actually, because as word got around that Jesus and his disciples had gone to Bethsaida, People from all over the place, from various towns and villages, they all converged on the area where Jesus was, around Bethsaida. Uh, in uh, verse 14, Luke tells us how many people there were. Do you see what he says? How many people were there? There was 5,000 men. And that raises the question, doesn't it, is this a men's conference? <laughs> Uh, is this only for blokes? Well, no, it's, that's a cultural thing because uh, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us that, uh, 
again, also uses the, the, the number 5,000. Matthew says there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So we're talking, this is a big conference, friends. This is bigger than Katoomba. This is a huge conference that's, uh, this is a large crowd of people here. Now, notice that uh, although it's Jesus' day off, he doesn't shoo them away, does he? He doesn't say, look, I can't you know, deal with you at the moment. No, what we're told is in verse 11 that because he is the good shepherd, that he welcomes them, that he spent the rest of the day uh, teaching the word of God to people and healing those who needed to be healed. And yet, for the 12 disciples, there is a problem which is emerging. As the, as the day rolls on, it's starting to get late. People are starting to get a little bit hungry and a little bit tired. And so they get alongside Jesus and they have a word with him and they say, Jesus, do you think it's about time to wrap things up? <laughs> you know, allow the people to, to leave so they can go into the villages around the area, they can grab some food, get some takeaway from the various outlets and find a place to, uh, to, to sleep for the night. Do you think it's time to do that? That was the problem that they saw, that people were now hungry and they were tired. But Jesus saw this to be an opportunity. And so if you have a look in verse 13, and in verse 13 he replied, you give them something to eat. You provide the food for the crowd. Now imagine if you were one of the disciples. And there's this huge crowd. It's probably 10,000 people or more. Uh, that are, and Jesus now says, you provide the food for these people. I'd be thinking to myself, um, I think that's a job for professional caterers, actually. <laughs> and uh, professional caterers backed by some pretty good suppliers. Uh, but here they were, they were. There were 12 disciples. And what food did they have? Well, they had five loaves of bread and two fish. And so unless they go into town and buy some food, then how could they possibly feed this crowd themselves? Not to mention, how on earth are you going to get the food back to where the crowds are, you'd, you'd require, there'd be a couple of truckloads of food, wouldn't it, for 5,000 people. And so for them, this is a huge problem. But they've forgotten something, haven't they? What is it that they've forgotten? Well, how about the fact that they've just come back from a mission trip where when they set out on the mission trip, Jesus told them to take no food with them and no money. Just trust that God would provide. Or think about Peter. Remember back in um, uh, chapter 5 when Peter met Jesus for the first time? Peter had been out fishing all day, hadn't he? How many fish had he caught? Big fat zero. He had caught no fish all day. And then Jesus says, well, get back in there, Pete. Drop your nets and catch some fish. And Peter's the professional fisherman. Jesus is the carpenter, but Peter obeys what Jesus says. And what happens? So many fish that it, uh, it busted the nets 
And when they got the fish on board the, uh, the, the boats, the boats began to sink. And it seems that they've forgotten about that. Or what about if we go back into Israel's history? Because there was another time, wasn't there, when the people of God were gathered in vast numbers in an arid place where there was no food. Do you remember when that was? The Exodus. Did God provide the food? What did God do? Well, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, friends, it says that there were 5,000 men in the desert. No, it doesn't. It says there were 600,000 men in the desert, plus women, plus children. Now, you can do the sums on that. We're talking about a crowd in the millions. Millions of Israelites who had left Egypt, who were now in the desert, who were without food, who cried. And what did God do? He provided, didn't he? Miraculously. They woke up in the morning and what did they find on the ground? The manna, the bread from heaven. All that needed to happen was for it to be picked up and eaten. It seems that the disciples, they're not thinking about that, are they? <laughs> They'd forgotten about what God can do. Have a look at verse 14. The second part of verse 14. Uh, it says, uh, But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone, everybody sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them, then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And miraculously, uh, the hungry crowd was fed. The bread and the fish just kept on multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. So that in verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, we can't say for sure whether there's anything symbolic about the 12 basketfuls of food that was left over, but maybe, just maybe, it's actually, uh, a, there's, there's one per disciple, <laughs> one per apostle, as a good reminder of their lack of faith and of God's abundant, overflowing provision of that which was needed. Now it all begs the question, if the one who provided the bread to the crowds in the wilderness in Exodus was God, then who is this man who's just done the same thing? People have got different opinions about Jesus. Uh, Many people simply ignore Jesus as if he's a, a historical relic from the past or they pay lip service to Jesus. So, say he's a great religious leader or a philosopher, someone who died for a worthy cause. Um, people reduce Jesus to this image of a cute baby in a manger, which we've seen a bit of in the last few days. Some church leaders uh, want to reduce him to just a man, but a very, very special man. And they, they cast doubt uh, on the miracles, even this miracle. 
for example, one, uh, one uh, church leader, one theologian I read, said this. He said that if you find this miracle of the feeding of this large crowd, uh, if you find this miracle too hard to believe, if it's a bit too much for you, then let me give you an alternative, lovely explanation that might be more believable. And he says this, he says, maybe, just maybe, everyone in the crowd actually had with them a packed lunch. But they saw the massive crowd as well. They saw the problem, so they hid their lunch because they didn't want to have to share it. And then someone pulls out these five loaves of bread and these two fish and shares it. And that actually was miraculous because it miraculously had this effect of changing people's hearts. So they thought, oh, I might bring out mine as well and share mine around. And before you know it, everyone's sharing their food around and everyone was well fed and there was all this food left over. And that's a lovely explanation of the miracle. That's not what the Bible says, is it? It's actually, that's lack of faith. That's not taking God at his word. Um, the, the question is, who is this man? Who is this man who creates food out of almost nothing? And that is the question that a plain reading of the text confronts us with. And so in verse 18, we now move on to a different scene. It's a different time. It's a different place. But Luke uh, puts this immediately after the feeding of the thousands for a reason. In, in verse 18, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do they say that I am? Now, the, uh, the, the disciples uh, have got their ears to the ground and they've got some thoughts on <clears throat> what people are saying about Jesus and the consensus seems to be amongst the people that Jesus was one of the one of the former prophets so you see in verse 19 uh, they replied some say that you're John the Baptist and remember John had been beheaded by Herod so they're thinking John the Baptist has come back to life Others say that you're Elijah. And remember, Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind, didn't he? That was the last we saw of Elijah. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So these people aren't quite sure who, which prophet he is, but they're sure that he's a prophet from the past. And they would have thought that they were honouring Jesus by saying that he was one of these great prophets. But they've actually set their sights too low, haven't they, uh, to be thinking that. And so Jesus now gets, gets up pretty close and personal, having asked the disciples, well, who do the crowds say that I am? In verse 20, he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, um, <clears throat> Peter doesn't always get it right, does he? I mean, you know, they say that Peter only opens his mouth to change his feet. You know, that's, um, he often says the wrong thing at the wrong time. But this time, he actually nails it, doesn't he? 
Who do you say that I am? Peter answered in verse 20, the Christ of God. That's who you are. You're not just a prophet. You're not just John the Baptist or Elijah. You are the Christ of God. Wow. This time he's nailed it. Now why do you think that Peter was so clear and so correct this time? Was it because of the experience of the feeding of that large crowd of people? Was that what changed Peter's mind? Well, I've got to say, the feeding of the 5,000 plus, that was a pretty big hint as to who Jesus is. And we need to be uh, reading through the Gospels. We need to be helping our friends who are not Christians to read through the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, the reason Luke has written his Gospel is so that there is an historical record of what actually happened so that people can actually read about Jesus and think about what he's done and make up make a decision about Jesus. The evidence is there. The evidence which we all need to wrestle with is in the Gospels and it is, it is evidence which demands a verdict. But evidence alone is not enough because this is a spiritual issue. There are some people who can read through the Gospels and say, well, means nothing to me. I've known of people who've, who've read through the Bible, they've read through the, the Gospels, they have been unbelievers, and then at a particular point in time, suddenly the penny drops and they start believing. And you find out that there's been people praying for them. This is a spiritual issue. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that the God of this age, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan blinds people. We have dead and hardened hearts and what is required is a work of God. A work of God to unplug the ears, a work of God to, um, uh, to take the, the scales off the eyes, a work of God to change a person's heart. Now, think about this. <clears throat> In verse, nine, verse 18, when Jesus poses this question to the disciples, what had Jesus been doing? In verse 19, verse 18. It says, once when Jesus was, what was he doing? He was praying, praying in private and his disciples were with him. So Jesus had been praying. What do you think Jesus might have been praying about? Well, we don't know for sure. But in Matthew 16, uh, when Matthew records this event, Jesus told Peter after Peter had said that you are the Christ, Jesus says to him that um, that that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but uh, rather that this has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. 
It is a spiritual awakening. This confession by Peter is the result of Jesus' prayer. This confession which says, you are the Christ. Now, when you think about it, this is a great moment because this is the, the first time in Jesus' ministry where, uh, where a human has correctly identified who Jesus is. The demons have identified that this is the first human that's actually uh, recognised who Jesus truly is. So it's a great moment that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Lord's anointed, that Jesus is the ruler over God's kingdom. And yet the funny thing about it is that straight away in verse 21, with Peter having expressed this, in verse 21, Jesus warns them, warns his disciples to now keep this information a secret. He doesn't want them to tell anybody that he is the Christ. He doesn't want anyone to know. And the question, therefore, is why? Why this cone of silence? Why this secrecy? And we've seen this throughout uh, in other passages earlier in Luke's Gospel. For example, in uh, chapter 4, verse 35, in chapter 4, verse 51, when demons were confronted by Jesus and demons spoke out loud saying, you are the Holy One of God, Jesus silenced them. Jesus told them to, to keep quiet about that. And bear in mind that they have confessed who Jesus is. They had spiritual insight without prayer. They were spot on because this is actually a spiritual issue and they are spiritual beings. Now, you see, the evidence that Jesus is God's king was already there in the miracles. However, the expectation which the disciples had of what it meant to be the Christ, what it meant to be God's king over God's kingdom, was wrong. And this is why Jesus doesn't want the word to spread. Um, we see this after the resurrection uh, on the road to Emmaus. Um, just come with me to chapter 24 for a moment. Uh, if you fl flip over to chapter 24 and verse 17, uh, the context here is that Jesus has been killed. He's died on the cross. He has risen from the grave. And he's walking along the street when he meets up with two disciples. Now, they're not from the, amongst the twelve. They're two different disciples. But, um, and they don't recognise him, which we're not told why they didn't recognise him, but uh, it's understandable given that they thought that he was dead. But have a look at uh, verses 17 through to 21. Let me read it. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, 
Are you only a visitor to, to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. You see that? Do you see their expectation? Their expectation of what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ had been dashed by his death. They had hoped that he would redeem Israel. They said, we hoped that he was our redeemer, but clearly he's not because he's been killed. What were they expecting? They were expecting a worldly king. They were expecting a king who would raise up a rebellion, a king who would drive out the Romans, a king who would make Israel great again, and yet their hopes have been dashed because he's been killed. But you see, friends, this is not why Jesus came. It is not who he is. Go back to Luke chapter 9. And have a look at verses 21 and 22. In verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. You see, even the disciples wanted a worldly king. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee? Got alongside Jesus. Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, and their mother was there as well, when you come into your kingdom, how about if one of us is your left-hand man and one of us is your right-hand man? What are they expecting? They're expecting a worldly kingdom. But now here in this verse, Jesus links a warning not to tell anyone that he's the Christ with the reason being what it actually meant to be the Christ. He must allow for the things which are about to happen to play out. He must allow uh, people to, to call for his crucifixion. He must allow for his rejection and his death to occur. He must, not be, he must not allow for himself to be set up as some kind of a nationalistic hero. He must allow for these things to happen. For only when they do can he truly be the saviour as God lays on him the judgement for the sins of the world. And only then, as he is raised from the dead and returns to heaven, can he truly be the Christ, the ruler over God's everlasting kingdom, the ruler over all people who trust in him 
and who name him as their Lord and receive the forgiveness that he brings. These things, his rejection, his death and his resurrection must be allowed to play out. And you can imagine trying to understand these things on their side of the resurrection. Trying to understand that to be the king over God's kingdom meant that he would go to his death and be raised from the dead. It's really only after the resurrection and particularly after the, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it's only looking back on these events that the disciples can truly answer the question, who is this man? Uh, it's only in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stands up before the crowd full of the Holy Spirit and he's able to say, this man whom you crucified, God has made Lord and King and to say so with confidence because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and being able to look back on the resurrection. At this point, they can only look forward and they can only see very dimly what will happen. Um, in John's Gospel, uh, uh, Jesus actually explained to the disciples the meaning of the miraculous feeding of these thousands of people. And in John chapter 6, he says, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, Jesus didn't come simply to feed people with bread. Jesus is the bread. He alone is the one who can satisfy the deepest hunger of our souls. He alone is the one who can fill our need to be forgiven. He alone is the one who can provide that which we need to enjoy a relationship with our Creator forever and ever. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. And he does so through the things outlined here, through his rejection, through his death, and on the third day, through his being raised to life again. And so the question, therefore, is who is this man? The American uh, General Lew Wallace, he, th he thought that he knew the answer to that question. He uh, was fairly confident uh, that he could write a book that would, uh, uh, which would disprove Christianity once and for all because it was all just a big hoax. He wanted to write something which would dismantle our faith. But I want to share with you what he actually wrote, what he ended up writing. And he wrote these words, and I quote, After six years given to the impartial investigation of Christianity as to its truth or falsity, I have come to the deliberate conclusion that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of the Jews, the saviour of the world, and this is the clincher, he says, and my own personal redeemer. And he wrote his book, uh, he called it Ben-Hur. Uh, it was the top-selling uh, American novel of the 19th century. 
and it tells a story about Jesus from the point of view of a slave. Great book. What about you? Um, what do you think about Jesus? Is Jesus your personal redeemer? Is he for you the bread that brings satisfaction to the deepest hungers of your soul? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Then, friends, uh, if so, then live as a person who is filled with satisfaction. Live as a person who knows what it, what it means to be fed to overflowing with the great bread of life that you found in Jesus. And if not, then Jesus invites you to, uh, to put your trust in him, to never go hungry. He who eats the bread of Jesus will never go hungry. He is the one who satisfies the hunger of your soul. So let's pray about these things, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for revealing who he is so clearly through his miracles, through his teaching, and uh, particularly through his death and his resurrection. We thank you that he is the bread of life. We thank you that we can feed on him. We thank you, Father God, that he can be our ruler forever and ever. We pray for each one of us here that we would be people who trust in Christ as our personal redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.